If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 11? And as you turn to Hebrews 11, I want to let you know that we're introducing this morning a new sermon series during Advent. Uh, This morning will take us up to Christmas Eve service. I hope you're planning to attend, inviting family and friends to join us for a very special Christmas Eve service. But this new sermon series is this. It's Christmas movies. And in this, this season, we're going to look at the movies of Christmas. We'll, look at, we'll put one in front of you each weekend and consider its themes through the lens of biblical truth. All right, so let's start with trivia question, okay? I'm borrowing from Rotten Tomatoes, the movie review and ranking site. According to Rotten Tomatoes, this is the number two Christmas movie of all time. The number two on a list of 100. Now, what would you guess it would be? It's Elf. It's not Elf. That's my, that's my boy. I don't know who that is, but that's my boy. Well, it's not It's a Wonderful Life. That's number one. But what would be number two? Okay. Everybody's wrong that I heard, except one person over here. I'll give, I'll give the rest of you a hint. Uh, the first word is a very biblical, spiritual, Jesus kind of word, and then it has to do with an address. Miracle on 34th Street. And in this movie, this second most popular Christmas movie, Simadan now, in this second most popular Christmas movie of all time, we're introduced to a character, Miss Doris Walker. Remember Miss Doris, some of you? And she is a divorced single mother whose husband left her when her child was small. And she works at Macy's Department Store, Manhattan, 34th, the largest retail department store in America. And she's, Miss Doris Walker, is in charge of hiring and supervising Santa Claus. The problem is she doesn't believe she's down on Santa Claus. And it doesn't take long for the viewer to see that the reason, it's more than just common sense, rational, logical stuff. The reason that she's down on Santa Claus is the rejection and abandonment from her husband and the hole that's in her heart. In fact, she's down on Santa Claus and all things silly. She's down on optimism and idealism and the needed virtues that breathe oxygen into us and out from us, faith, hope, and love. She has lost faith. We're introduced early on to Kris Kringle. Chris was the Santa Claus hired to work Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in 1947. The year, by the way, this movie came out the year this sanctuary was built, being built. It opened in 1948, kind of cool. Didn't say that at the 930 in the gym. But here we are. In this movie, Chris Kringle is the Santa Claus, Macy's, 1947, 34th Street in Manhattan. And he, Chris Kringle, is down on the commercialism of Christmas But he's up on Santa. Those of you in business, if you have retail, I know it can be hard. But Chris, uh, he gives, Chris Kringle gives us some lessons. Put the customer first. Uh, Always speak the truth to them. He would tell children, hey, if there's a toy here that you don't want, you don't have to buy it. If there's another department store uh, close by and it's a better price, you can buy it there. And this made Mr. Macy's kind of mad at first. But Mr. Macy realized that, hey, if you put the customer first, you develop customer loyalty and actually can make greater profit. And Chris Kringle does his thing. And he actually not only believes in Santa Claus, he is Santa Claus. And Miss Doris Walker says, you need to be institutionalized as insane. 
She calls for the Macy psychologist. Evidently, they had him back then in the late 40s. So he's institutionalized for his insanity in believing the incredulous that he believes. And there's this lawyer. Uh, you got to have a lawyer, right? There's a young lawyer named Fred. And let me say this. I'm down with Fred. Look what Fred says at one point on Miracle of 34th Street. He says this to her. Look, Doris, someday you're going to find out that your way of facing this realistic world doesn't work. Now, I love this next phrase, this next sentence. Don't overlook the lovely intangibles. You'll discover they're the only things that are worthwhile. That's what I want to say to you this morning. As we segue into God's word, into Hebrews, I want to say to some of you, don't overlook the lovely intangibles. And some of you need me to say to you that you're finding out that your way of facing this realistic world is not working. There's a point where this was Fred the lawyer to Miss Doris, and Chris Kringle had said to her, faith at times doesn't make sense. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 11. If your Bible is open, you can follow along. If it's not, you'll have to trust me. Uh, see if it's smoke and mirrors on the screen here. Hebrews chapter 11 makes, and we'll look at verse 1 and verse 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's so important. Would you say that aloud with me? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Would you do it one more time a little louder? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. It goes on to say, I'll do this one. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. This virtue. It is needed. In fact, when you look at Jesus and how he lived and loved and how he taught, it's what he prized. He rebuked. He issued, using um, patterns from Hebrew poetry, he issued woes on the religious people. Those who worshipped him with their mouths but their hearts were far from him. He warned and he, he spoke down woes. But yet he praised faith. When you see Jesus praising someone, it's because of their faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the confidence in what is not seen. Now, church, how's that different than a vibe or a hunch or wishful thinking or waving a wand or having some magic elixir? How is that different? There's this thin membrane at times but I believe that what Jesus said is so true that he's going to honor the one who is childlike in their faith the one that in abject poverty comes and says I need you my strategy of doing it myself is not working and I come and note what does it say you seek him how Seek him earnestly. Some versions render that diligently. You stay after it. Believing that he is. Believing that he is a rewarder of those. 
I want us to just look at some characters because you can't go to Hebrews 11 without talking about some of these women and some of these men. So just in quick fashion, let's look at Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Are you kidding me? Of whom it was said, though through Isaac rather, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In this society, it's a lot different from our society. And there's this challenge that's readily understood by all. Are you kidding me, God, asking a man to offer up his only son? Anybody see the gospel in the old? It's a foreshadow. It's a sonogram to the new. And here is this offering, but it's more than just a son. You see, it's an agrarian society. It's agricultural based. No Mississippi State jokes here. But it's just, it's it's a farming society, right? And in this farming society, children are valued. They're not just little things that reflect us nicely. Some of us, I love you, but some of us parent and our children are idols, They're just our idols. We elevate them to God-like status and everything revolves around them. And that society was different. Uh, That society, there was something inherent and innate that broke the back of entitlement. And there was for these boys and girls, hey, this is summons to get out in the field and tend to the flock and herd the sheep and plow the South 40 and to work very, very hard. And having sons was more valued in this history and culture because sons were, could physically do, and there was the inheritance involved, and it was prized to have many sons. And l- listen, it was a financial safety net. There was no 401k or IRAs or social security. Your s- children, particularly your sons, were your future financial security. It's why Susan and I have three kids. We're hoping one of them will go on to great riches and wealth and will secure our future, right? That is our plan. But in this society, it was truly a safety net. And here is this idea, this reality of offering up. We move from Abraham to Jacob and Joseph. Their stories are similar, Hebrews eleven twenty one to 22. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Okay, we'll get to Moses in a second. Here is Jacob and Joseph, and they had to wait. In fact, they experienced death. They didn't see all that God had promised. And long before a 1980s country music song by Randy Travis said, Digging Up Bones, here, is, here are these guys saying, Do that because I will be in the promised land. So when God's going to do what he says. He is going to be faithful to his promise. I didn't see it all, but he's going to do it. Dig them up and plant me there. Because God is trustworthy. From Abraham and Jacob and Joseph, we see Moses. And this, verses 24 to 27 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This is so rich. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. How'd he get it, y'all? By faith. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
controlled by the crowd, too worried what people think, dominated by this life. There's more to it. Look, I'm watching some of you men, and you're looking down, and you're, you're about to figure out if it's Alabama or Ohio State, right? Or do we already know? Good, you're not looking, okay? I sold you short. But there's more to it than a four-team playoff. There's more to it than pigskin. There's more to it than this life and all that brings us joy. And I'm telling you, I'm getting older, and I, all I've done is ministry. I graduated college, and I just went into ministry. That's all I've done. I'm a simple man. And I've ministered to people and pastored. And you know, you have a story and I have a story. And we're told in Scripture to love one another, pray for one another, confess our sins to one another, bear one another's burdens, to honor one another, and accept one another. And in the process of being a minister for these many years, I have seen people with deep, deep scars of regret for living solely and only for the temporary pleasures of this world. And I have yet, I'm not going to lie in church, I have yet to ever meet anybody who regretted living a life of faith. Yes, it gets hard. Were you here last week? We talked about how God delivers. And sometimes God delivers us from something. Praise God. Sometimes he delivers us through something. And sometimes he delivers us later. Like Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the others. But he delivers and he provides. Let's throw in two more real quick. The walls of Jericho and the Red Sea. Hebrews 29, then we'll look at 30. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Next verse. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, how interesting is that? I'm sure that these are military guys. And in military, like coaching, there is a strategy. How many of you have a goal and you want to accomplish something? And you're like, what? You're looking for the strategy. You're writing on a whiteboard. What would it be like if you're the Israelites back then? Hey, God, what's our strategy? Battering ramp. You know, we're going to flank the rear, misdirection, bootleg, play action pass. What are we doing, God? This is going to be good. And God's like, no, it's the old circle and shout. You're just going to circle and then you're going to shout. You're going to do what I say. You're going to do things on my terms and in my timing. It's not your strategy. It doesn't make sense. But my way is the better way. Do it my way. By faith. So I want to give you three points. We build a foundation. I want to give you three points. I believe it's why you came today. Three points about faith. Faith is a response to revelation. Any of you like me, you love nature, you love to get outside and God speaks. Doesn't mean you don't need to come to church, but you love to get outside and God meets you in a special way. My wife is from California. Those folks are fruity and nutty out there. And there's just a lot of naturalists, a lot of environmentalists, a lot of folks that are caretakers of this increasingly fragile planet, it seems. And they look up and they see God some in nature. Psalm 19 says that God created. It says that the skies proclaim the work of his hands. It's telling his story. It pours forth speech by day. And at night it reveals knowledge. The heavens, it says famously, declare the glory of God. 
It is true. And it says in Psalm 19, it says that everywhere, the, the voice of God, he speaks in his creation all around the world. If you were here last week, you saw our own Nick Crawford interview, Panya. And Panya is on the ground fighting sexual exploitation and human trafficking in Cambodia. It's one of our strategic partners. We send them money every month. We're strategic because you give, we're able to give to them. And I've been in the summer a couple of years ago. Some of our staff, some of you have been. And if you were here last week, you heard this guy speak and share his heart. His English is not great, but it's good and it's beautiful, right? And I got to spend time with him Tuesday night. Just some one-on-one. Just the memories that I had with him that summer. Just getting some one-on-one time. And his stomach was getting nauseated by, get this, Western food. He wanted to go to Little Saigon. Jesus is not calling me to Little Saigon. Uh, so we went to Buffalo Wild Wings. He, he thought, you know, I could have some of that lemon pepper Wild Wings. And we just sat down and we talked. And I went to Flowood. I used to live out there. And I introduced him to some friends that I bumped into. And I was so proud of him. I was like, hey, come be my friend. And we just talked. And as I'm listening to his stories and I'm laughing, he makes me think and feel. And he makes me want to challenge you to give and go and live an adventure. And when I'm with Pani, I'm reminded that when we go to Cambodia, we're not taking God with us. He's already there. His speak, he's speaking and working all around the globe. We don't understand it all. I don't. I'm the pastor with as many questions as the parishioner. But God is working and God is speaking and it is around all the earth. And Hebrews 11 that we've read starts with Hebrews 1.1. And Hebrews, by the way, was a book written to, to Jesus followers who found, listen, following Jesus to be difficult. They were being persecuted. Friends were falling away. They were lagging behind. And this letter is written to say, it's going to be difficult. God's going to deliver you from and through and maybe later. But keep walking with him. The reward is great. It is worth it. And in this... Hebrews 1.1, it starts off saying this, God spoke to us in many times in various ways through the prophets and others and now speaks to us through his son who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, Hebrews 1.1. He speaks through creation and the night sky. He speaks through his son. He speaks through his word. And let me put a fancy phrase up on the board. He speaks here, sensus divinatus. Anyone want to take a stab at that one? What is that? A sense of the divine. If it was Jeopardy, you'd, be, you'd get that right, except in the form of a question. The sense of the divine. And some belief. Some live on a horizontal, humanistic, naturalistic level and say that we are nothing but a varied assembly of neurons and protons and associated chemical reactions and molecules. Is that true? Is that all we are? We have trouble buying it. It's why there are vastly more God-believers in the world than atheists. It's why there's a growing trend for people to turn to things outside of themselves. You've heard me illustrate it this way before, but science tells us uh, how or why rats don't have tails. But it can't tell us why we find that interesting. There's something more, do you see? A valid, authentic, meaningful, appropriate place for science. But it's limited. It's great. It's noble. It is good. But it's limited. 
And there's something in us. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity in our hearts. It's sensus divinatus. It's a sense of the divine. We see it in the ecstasy of love. Could you imagine a young man looking at a young woman around mid-February and saying, we are just together, a varied collection of neurons and protons, and I want to pass my genetic disposition on uh, happy Valentine's Day. I mean, is that what we do? There's more. We see it, this eternity in our hearts, in the ecstasy of love. And we also, to borrow a common phrase, we see it in atheists and foxholes. We see it in desperate times. We see it when you're hurting. I do a lot of weddings, you know this. It's an honor to do that. It's one of the joys of my job. And sometimes it's a young congregation. Sometimes we do funerals. And there's no place for ministry greater than when people have lost a loved one. And that eternity, that ache, that insatiable, unquenchable sense, sensus divinatus, that there is more, there's something more. We see it in the ecstasy of love. We see it atheist in foxholes. One of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton, put it this way. He said, if you want to really know what's in the basement, in your basement, surprise the basement. Sneak down there and open up a door that doesn't crick and just gently, you know, turn on the light, flip the switch and you will see what's in your basement. If it's a bug or a spider or a roach or a rodent or whatever it might be, that's how you find out what's in your basement. You want to see what's in your basement? Surprise your basement. The opposite is true. If you walk down and make a lot of noise and open a door that creaks and makes noise and, you know, you turn on the light switch, you've already forecast you're coming you're not really going to find out what's in your basement. And if you want to find out what's in the human heart, surprise it. Be caught off guard. Be put in a tough situation. Have something suddenly explode and be in a place where you're at a loss and you'll find out. And I'm saying to you, there is a God-given thing in you, sensus divinatus, a sense of the divine that cries out from foxholes or college students before final exams. It cries out for help. So, faith is a response to revelation, to his creation, to his son, to his word, to that that is within you. Secondly, faith is this. It is action around the unseen. Consider the verbs in Hebrews 11. We only looked at a few, but Noah built. Noah built. Abraham left. Jacob blessed. Joseph instructed. Moses chose. Joshua fought. There was action every single time. Jesus taught in Matthew 7 about two kinds of builders, two kinds of people in the world. One builds on the sand and one builds on the rock and the storms come to both. We want to be that kind of church where we never teach you that if you do everything Jesus' way, storms won't come. Because guess what? Jesus teaches that storms come to everybody. Quit, quit living your life by storm avoidance. Because they're coming. But the two types of people, the rock and the sand, what's the difference? He's no longer talking about substance here, he's substantive things. What's he talking about? Wisdom and foolishness. What's the difference between a wise and a foolish person? Well, it's intelligence. No, it's not. It's not. It's what you do with what you know. And that is the difference. 
And I and my job have a front row seat to very intelligent people doing very dumb things. And listen to me. Hear me. Jesus taught. Hear and do. Hear and do. Peter Marshall, a very intelligent former chaplain for the United States Senate. God knows we need some chaplains in the Senate today. And Peter Marshall from years ago said, what if we, what if we read the very words of Jesus and when we read them, we just stop and we go do what he says. In that moment, we read them, we hear what he says and we go do what it says. What would happen? We would bring heaven to earth. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That would happen if we applied. The half-brother of Jesus in James says, that it's not just hearing the word, it's hearing and acting upon it. It's, it's, some of us are like we just look in the mirror and we forget and we go on our way. We look intently but we do nothing about it. And faith is action around the unseen. I know a pastor, I've hung out with him a few times and I follow him from a distance. He lives in Kentucky, his name is John Weiss. John is a man that I admire not but for his skill as an orator, as a preacher, as a writer, but how he lives his life. He tells a story of a couple of decades ago. It was one of his hardest times in his life where he lost his dad. And in losing his dad, there was, of course, the funeral. And though he loved his dad, his dad led the home in sort of a business-like way where they were cognitively close, intellectually they exchanged facts, and they knew a lot about each other, but they didn't hug, and there wasn't a lot of affection. And at the funeral... He talks about how just he got hug after hug. His family stood. Some of you know this. And stood and received hug after hug. And on the way home from this funeral, after hundreds of hugs, he told his wife through tears, I am different. He said, I'm going to do something. I am different. This, these hugs had a profound impact on my life. And he got a poster board and a black marker and he wrote two words. Remember, this is a couple of decades ago. And he wrote the two words, free hugs. And he stood, he went to downtown Lexington every Tuesday during lunch hour. And he stands at this very crowded place with his sign. And he says that through these couple of decades, he's given some 20,000 hugs by estimate. He's led several people to Christ. He's befriended homeless men and women. He said his first week he started doing it, a country guy in a truck pulled up, walked up to him and said, Oh, I thought, it, I thought your poster said free hogs. Only in Kentucky would they think free farm animals, right? He, and there's a, where he stands, where John Wee stands, every Tuesday, there's a courthouse. In that courthouse, there's a judge that goes to John's church. And when that judge is issuing penalty or payment for drug offenders, he requires them. It's a judge mandate that he has to walk they have to walk over to John and they have to give him a hug and John says he knows it he knows when it's them because they come reluctantly and they give the stiff side hug and roll their eyes he tells a story one time of a woman in her 50s with looked pretty beaten up leathery dark skin very disheveled smoking a cigarette on a 10-speed bike. She was watching him, probably hug 10 or 15 people in this span. She cocks her head to the side, and in her raspy voice and squinted eyes, she said, what's that sign say? She couldn't read. 
He said he went to her and just wrapped one tight on her and pulled her, clo- pulled her close. And she whispered as she cried, nobody's hugged me in a long time. Religious people, church folk, get really confused. Politics trips us up, cultural wars, we lose them. Year after year, decade after decade. But the gospel remains. And here's the gospel stated for us. In Galatians 5, 6b, I'll leave off the part about circumcision because that takes some explanation. But Galatians 5, 6 says, and our elders in, a, in Chip Muskelly's cabin out in the woods in January, we just, this, God just burned this into our heart that this is what our church is about. The only thing that counts is faith expressed in love. It's the only thing that counts. So what are the verbs in your life? Did I mention the final point? I didn't. Faith is more crazy than it is common. I'll close with this. I know a family of four. I've shared this with some of you maybe three years ago, but it bears repeating. A family of four I know would uh, go to eating establishments and they will order something kind of low on the menu, and then give a God-sized tip. All right, so for some of you, this could have immediate application. You're going to leave here and eat, okay? 11 o'clock service. They would order something small and tip big. And this one family was at Waffle House on Christmas. Jesus is at Waffle House on Christmas. And they talked to this young waiter and one of the kids said, why are you working on Christmas? And the college kid told him, hey, I'm out of money. I can't even afford my tuition. I don't have a car. My family's in Texas and I can't get home. And this family of four wrote a note before their exit. And on this note, it said, here's a blank check. Fill it in for next semester's tuition. And here's the keys. To that blue Volvo. It's yours. They walked home. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So I'm kind of at a tender moment now where I feel this weight of like, do I say some things that will guilt you? Or do I just say to you, to all of you, Anybody sick of common? Anybody tired of occasional church attendance, throwing a little money in the plate when it comes around, no intentionality? As one writer said, it's just a sporadic exercise. It's not a steady embodiment. And you can't write unlimited checks and give away blue Volvos, possibly. Although, let me just say, some of you can. If you can, maybe you should. Man, Jesus calls us to something so vastly different than the way we live. Are you with me? Like he's calling some of you to walk away from a lucrative career to go serve him. 
He's calling some of you to give big money. Like you're bragging on yourself, maybe even to others on what you give, but it's nothing to what you could and should give. And God is calling you into that. Be obedient. I'm going to try to close this service like I did at 9.30 just quickly. But I stood on that stage in the gym and I started recounting some ways that our people, that some of you get it. That you realize the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. I think of Miss Jan who sits over here at every 11 o'clock service who last Sunday approached me. She stood and she waited to talk to me and she took off her skull cap. She's in a battle with cancer and she took it off and boasted to my face. She said, I have more hair than you do. (laughs) And you know, I know some of you have helped them. Go to Houston this week at MD Anderson. And I don't know if I could be like Miss Jan and have the joy that she has when you don't know if you're going to live for Christmas Day. How about you? I think of a young man that I baptized not long ago that has an addictive personality. And he's battled some stuff. I mean, he's battled some stuff. And with that, he made poor choice. I'm talking juicy stuff, cheating and lying and stealing and just getting involved in seedy stuff. And Jesus got a hold of his life. And you know what he does? He realized where he could be, where he should be, and he goes into prison. Because Jesus said that little thing in Matthew 25 about going into prison. Wasn't a figurative speech, wasn't a metaphor. And this young man I know, part of our church, goes in and ministers to people. And it takes hours to do that. Then there's our friend Katie. Katie's in Haiti. Some of you know Katie Etheridge. She's one of the cutest young ladies. She got involved in Fonder Church when we were at Dueling Hall. And she was in medicine at UMC. And I want to say this the right way. But you know, does social media ever poison y'all? Like you wonder why you post some of the things you post and then you're trying to keep up with the Joneses and you see what they post and like you, you, you hate them because of what they post. And like Katie is my favorite person to follow on social media because Katie is in Haiti and her life is not her own. And I don't know that anybody in this room has more joy than Katie Etheridge. She'll podcast this sermon this week and I'll be her favorite pastor. But man, she loves Jesus and serving this children in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And it's not a mission trip. It's like a commitment that's long-term. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Been a little warm in here today. I'll close. Would you stand?